Welcome to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio, where we explore pathways to health for self, society, and the planet. We are home to a range of voices, as there is no single roadmap for meeting the challenges of our times. Tune in each week to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Now, here's your host, Welcome, everyone, to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio has reached over 30,000 listens since September 2016, which is just remarkable. And I just want to thank you all for tuning in each week and joining us on this incredible adventure. When Bio Akumalafe introduced me to Dr. Lenny Strobel's work, it resonated with my own experience on many levels with learning how to dwell in my body and how revelatory and revolutionary this experience has been and how it changed my relationship to every aspect of my life. It has been and continues to work its way around me. And it reminds me a bit of a um, a small portion of a poem by John O'Donohue called Blessing, where he says it's like an invisible cloak to mind my life. And that's what it feels like. And I'm thrilled for our conversation today and this three-part series because it's my hunch that if we all learned how to dwell in a place, that this might just be an answer to healing many of the deep wounds that are presenting themselves as the looming crises that we are facing today. So I'm thrilled uh, for our conversation. And why don't we get started? I'd first like to share that my dear co-host for this series, Bio Akumalafe, is unable to join us today due to some un- unforeseen events that he must tend to, but he will be with us for the second and third part for this series. And also, we'll, hopefully we'll hear about it a little bit later, but Dr. Lenny Strobel is um, helping coordinate a series of talks that Bio will be um, uh, doing here in California just starting next week. So I believe the first talk is on May 10th, and you can find more about the series um, at bioacomolafe.net. And our guest today, Dr. Lenny Mendoza-Strobel, is Professor of American Multicultural Studies at Sonoma State University. She's also one of the founding directors of the Center for Babelan Studies that you can find at babelan.net. It's spelled B-A-B-A-Y-L-A-N dot net. And it's a 501c3 nonprofit organization that seeks to facilitate the process of decolonization and re-indigenization, specifically among Filipinos in the diaspora. Her books, journal articles, anthologies, and public talks on these themes have planted many seeds in various communities that are now manifesting as part of a larger visible cultural and ecological movement. The center organizes conferences, workshops, retreats, and symposia. Dr. Strobel also teaches a year-long course with Dr. Jurgen Kramer on decolonizing whiteness through the exploration of an ethno-autobiography process that centers indigenous paradigms. And you can find more information on Dr. Strobel's work at www.lennystrobel.com. It's L-E-N-Y-S-T-R-O-B-E-L.com. Welcome, Lenny. It is such a pleasure to have you here with us. Good morning, Rochelle. Thank you for the invitation to be with you this morning. Thank you to Bio for introducing us. 
Yeah, absolutely. I have so many questions, and I'm so excited we're doing a three-part series because there's there's so much to explore here. But Lenny, I wonder if the I think the best place to begin is is to have you talk a bit about how you came to the incredible work that you're doing now. And if I may add that, you know, the description for this episode came together from questions that you were asking of yourself as um, that you say so beautifully, it's an essay that you title Leaving Academe. And you say these questions have guided me out of the confines of my academic training. And I'm grateful for the voices that speak so loudly to my heart and spirit and who assure me that I'm doing right by my ancestors and my descendants. I'm gathering new stories to tell. If you could speak to this as well, it would be wonderful. Um, I let me let me. Can I backtrack all the way back to um, the beginning of this journey? Yeah. And I came to this country in 1983 by way of an interracial marriage, and I was in the Philippines. I grew up there, and I used to say that I am an immigrant, but. Because of the journey of trying to deal with my initial experiences of non-belonging and and being racialized and and being perceived as other in this culture, it it made me question a lot of things about my identity. And so I started going into therapy, and then I realized that therapy wasn't doing me any good. So I started. I decided I would um, go back to school. So I did my graduate studies at Sodoma State University and then my doctoral studies at the University of San Francisco. But really, I went back to school in order to unlearn my colonial education. And I think this is where Bayer and I connected when we first talked about uh, our experiences as academics. And so the whole process of thinking about cultural identity formation and then thinking about decolonization um, was really part of my personal journey. And as I began to inquire into why I felt the way I felt, I realized that as soon as I started teaching and publishing, that people were resonating with with what I was saying. And, And so that sort of became... I guess when I when my first book, Coming Full Circle, came out in 2001, I didn't expect that people would resonate with it. And then five years later, other professors would be picking it up and using it as a textbook. Um, but in that work, I sort of laid out a framework for decolonization for my communities, you know, for Filipinos in the diaspora. Um, and this framework was actually based on Paulo Freire's work on transformative education. And uh, I probably a lot of your listeners might be familiar with the Brazilian educator who proposed that uh, in order for us to transform society and transform ourselves, we must first begin to learn to name what it is that oppresses us and to meditate on that and then to act and make decisions and choices. And, and Paulo Freire has sort of been my savior in that way because he he gave me the language with which to speak this experience that I, I brought with me coming here. So as I started writing and publishing and, and then a community sort of began to form around that, um, the Center for Babylon Studies was formed in 2009 
And and the word babaylan is is a Visayan term, which is one of the major languages in the Philippines. It's a Visayan term for the healer, or the priestess, or the medicine woman, or the shaman. And there are many different names for that role because there are over 150 indigenous communities in the Philippines, and each community would have a name for that person, uh, who is one of the leaders of a pre-colonial um, community, indigenous community. So we have been tapping into this history of the Babaylan as a healer, as as a folk therapist, as someone who uh, makes helps the community to make the right decisions, um, and 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 we and in finding out about the history of how this figure, this this person, this medicine person was exterminated during the first 100 years of Spanish colonization, it, it resonated with maybe what I would call maybe a modern equivalent for the kind of work that must be done. And, and so one of the books that I co-edited with my younger sister, who is, always an, who is also an academic, the latest one we did was, on, was called Back from the Crocodile's Belly, um, mm-hmm. Philippine Babylon Studies and the Struggle for Indigenous Memory. And, and that title came from the story of the Babylons being chopped up and fed to crocodiles to make sure they don't come back, you know, mm-hmm. during the Japanese, I mean Spanish colonial era, the first 100 years. And so by using that title, we, we said we would like to coax back at the babaylans that were fed to the crocodiles and ask the crocodile to give them up so they can come alive again and, and inspire us. So I think the fact that there are people that are responding and resonating and coming forward and stepping out and saying, yes, I want to get to know this medicine person in the Filipino indigenous uh, tradition, um, I, I think this is what, can, what, what has given our movement or our organization the grounding and the seeds to, to grow the work that we're doing. Um, is that sufficient for now or can I stop now? And then oh, it's, it's beautiful, Lenny. You yeah. mentioned, you use a term, you know, finding a modern equivalent. And um, I wonder if you could speak to that. So how are, you know, the, the people that are, you know, accessing the information that you share, how how does that look in as a modern um, equivalent, how people are bringing it into their lives? I think... My most recent work, what has been what has become clear for me, is is a critique of modernity, maybe a critique of Western civilization and the paradigm or the worldview that has given birth to our institutions, to um, the way we have been um, desecrating or or using up the resources of the planet and and people beginning to realize that that story that we have told about who we are and as as a culture or as a civilization has really not been sustainable and so there is this global movement now that is sort of looking at indigenous paradigms and and wondering and looking at indigenous peoples and saying how have they managed to survive 
for hundreds of thousands of years in spite of genocides, in spite of holocausts that have been visited on, on their people. And, and, and I think this whole shift that I'm beginning to see, and I think I've also heard it in, in your previous broadcasts, Rochelle, as you talked to Dr. Frederick Afelmarglin, um, and as you talked to Bayo Komolafe, and as you talked to Charles Eisenstein. These are the folks that are beginning to articulate a modern version of something that is very old and ancient, you know. And, yeah. and so the modern equivalent for me in my... Um, situation of what the Babaylan's role might be um, has to do with reminding uh, people of what the original instructions are. So, for example, one of the indigenous elders in, among, in one of the indigenous communities in the Philippines, this Datu Viksawai, said, you know, we have been made to feel small, we have been made to feel inferior because supposedly we don't have sacred texts, and said, but actually... We have the biggest sacred text. We have nature. We know how to read the wind. We know how to read the mountain wind. So why do we feel small? Why do we feel embarrassed about who we are as indigenous people? So when I when I take those stories and listen to those stories of, of my own people who have somehow managed to remain uh, decolonized, you know, and remained untouched, not necessarily untouched, but have learned how to negotiate the onslaught of modernity on their people, I realized that part of the work that I need to do as someone in the diaspora is to continue or to re-educate ourselves in terms of learning what it means to be indigenous. Mm-hmm. And so part of the work that has emerged out of that is um, in the courses that I teach with Jürgen, is to look at the process of decolonizing and decolonization through ethno-autobiography. And that means um, using indigenous paradigm. um, And we call call these elements of ethno-autobiography, like teaching our students to reconnect with their ancestors. Mm -hmm. Um, And and you know that's very difficult work for most folks um, because we are told to disconnect from um, our ancestral roots. But for white students in the classroom, for example, when we tell them to reconnect with your ancestors, a lot of what comes up is shadow material, historical shadow material, you know, and, and they may have had ancestors who were slave owners, they may have had ancestors who drove out indigenous peoples from the land so they could take over, they may have had ancestors who have participated in the slave trade. So all of this stuff sort of comes up. And and what do you do when that comes up is you acknowledge it and heal it and, and say, um, how do I then not participate? Or how do I then not continue to perpetuate this kind of worldview that allowed those historical things to happen and then you have to look at white supremacy and then you have to look at white privilege and lately we have been looking at the concept of white fragility you know why is it so mm-hmm. difficult to talk about the roots of 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 this culture that have has been somewhat has been kind of destructive in spite mm-hmm. of the fact that we call ourselves democratic um there is an acronym for 
I think I forgot the name of the psychologist that created the acronym WEIRD, Western, Educated, Individualistic, Rich, and Democratic. You know, mm. this, that white culture is basically weird in that way. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so we help students grapple with those issues, and then we help them reconnect with place. You know, where did you grow up? Who was there before your family settled in that place? You know, what did you grow up around? Did you grow up around mountains or the desert or a farming community? And and to really understand who was there before and what it must have been like, not just in the immediate past, but in the long term. Um, when you look at history from a very long term, you may have to look back thousands of years, 10,000 of 10,000 years ago, what did California look like, you know? Uh, so in, 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 in my experience, when I'm trying to embody this knowledge for myself, I have been asking myself, who was here in Santa Rosa, in Sonoma County? And then I've had to look at Pomo and Coast Miwok history and, and all the other um, indigenous peoples that have lived here. Um, most recently, I've been reading... I've been fortunate to get an early manuscript of Greg Sarris' forthcoming book on how the mountain was made, which is a series of um, creation stories of the Pomo and Coast Miwok people. And by the way, Greg Sarris is the tribal chairperson of the Federated Indians of Greater Rancheria, and he is part Filipino, and mm-hmm. and he is also Jewish, and he is also and the Native American. And, and so there's that connection, local connection that I'm making. But he's also a professor of creative writing and, and Native American studies at Sonoma State University. So I've had the opportunity to be working with him. And also then um, being able to reconnect with some of the local um, Indian communities around here and trying to find my place in the conversation of what does it mean to see myself as being part of this place now that the, that belong belonged to or used to be um, Pomo and Cosmiwok land. That's mm. it's really fantastic. <clears throat> I grew up with uh, my stepdad I've, since I was three. He is um, half Native American, he's Chimawavy, and I just feel so blessed to have had the opportunity to, you know, be um, be able to meet and be with his family and to grow up with, with um, you know, that, that culture. And at the same time, it's, you know, you talk about how important it is that we name sort of the shadow material and you just, you know, observing and kind of witnessing and witnessing what's happened for the Chimawavy. Um, mm. You know, it's just, it's been, you know, certainly a um, very life-changing experience for me. And recognizing, you know, this, um, you know, the, the part that my ancestors played mm-hmm. in this devastation, you know, and so um, I just uh, very much honor your work in, in bringing about this change in this way and re-indigenation and decolonization. And I'm curious about, um, you know, I know you have extensive work for the Filipino people, and I'm curious if you know of other, um, 
you know, people like you that are within other Native traditions that are bringing this message about and um, integrating it more deeply within other, um, you know, different cultures. And do you know? um, You know, I've had an opportunity to organize, well, last year we organized a conference around um, our cross-cultural connections with Native peoples. And because we were hosted by um, a local organization in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, which then um, had relationships with the Coast Salish people, specifically the Squamish tribe. Mm-hmm. And so we organized a conference around issues of what it means to be a settler, what it means to be a Philippine, you know, transitioning from the identity of being immigrant to being settler. Mm-hmm. So when, when you begin to see yourself as a settler, then you begin to kind of reframe the narrative of I'm an immigrant that came from the Philippines, came to the United States because I'm, you know, for better life, better opportunity. When you shift that whole narrative to thinking mm-hmm. of yourself as someone who has been displaced due to colonial history and now is resettled in this place that originally belonged to indigenous peoples that have then what then becomes of your relationship to your own community and to the indigenous peoples and that was the theme around the conference that we wrestled with and it was a very difficult question because of course this is the first time we're sort of articulating it and making it visible and i think i I see this happening all over, actually. Of course, indigenous communities all over the United States are undergoing this decolonization and and re-indigenization as well. Um, And we're being inspired by that. But even among uh, young Filipino Americans, they're asking questions about what does it mean to be urban and indigenous? You know, how, Mm. how do I live my life then as a young person? walking about in, in, in urban, in San Francisco or Oakland, and, and how do we live our lives? And I'm seeing these young people creating art, creating different ways of making a living, creating movement and creating community uh, because they want to live differently on the land, because they want to live lives that are purposeful and meaningful. So um, I... I am inspired by that because people are beginning to connect that to the bigger question of what is sustainable and and what would it mean to honor your ancestors and to what they have been through, the sacrifice and, and all of the that historical shadow material that we're trying to heal. How do we make choices today, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I... In, and, and there are other movements around the country. There's so many. There's the New and Ancient Story. There's Bioneers. There's uh, the Pachamama people and, and all of these people doing what looks to me like global things, right? But mm-hmm. I've sort of been focusing on, on what it means to really do, learn how to dwell in a place. So when, for me, when I began to think about that question, what it made me think about is staying local. And, and even my idea of vacation has changed because I don't want to just go on vacation for the sake of getting away from. 
mm-hmm. from from my modern hectic fast paced life. Uh, for me, learning how to dwell in a place today is just stepping outside my deck and realizing that there's a giant redwood tree in in somebody's backyard. And I've lived in this house for 30 years, and for the first time, I'm seeing that tree. Mm. And this happened to me a few years ago. I stepped outside and realized there was this, I don't know, 100 feet tall redwood in my backyard. And I said, why haven't I seen you? I've lived in this place for this long, this many years, and I've never seen you. And from then on, I, I would go out every morning to greet that redwood tree. you know. And years ago, when I started decolonizing, my grandmother came to me in my dreams. And when I was growing up, I would string these little jasmine flowers with her and make lace, you know, garlands. And so 30 years ago, when I started this work, I planted a jasmine and now it's grown and it's crawling on my second floor deck. And every morning I greet my grandmother. Mm-hmm. So my life has become very simple and it has become very local. And we're raising chickens, we're raising vegetables uh, to try to feed our, ourselves from a small plot of garden. But I'm, I'm realizing that to walk the talk when I say I want to decolonize, I want to learn how to dwell in this place, that it has meant learning to slow down a lot, saying no to travel, saying no to, um, you know, the things that we used to do just to distract ourselves from um, having to face what we need to face, I guess, you know. Mm. Um, Lenny, it's it's beautiful and it's time to take a short break. And so maybe we can dive right into that when we come back. But before we go, I'd love to share an excerpt from a beautiful essay uh, by you. It's called Falling in Love with a Tree. Mm-hmm. And you you write, when to dwell in a place. This is the lesson I needed to learn. If I am to claim that I want to grow my indigenous consciousness, to court back my indigenous soul, this is what I must do to learn how to dwell in a place. Who are the beings that have lived here since time immemorial? What are their stories? What are their names? I am a settler in Sonoma County, California, displaced by colonial history from my homeland where we never learned how to dwell in a place. I am, ironically, learning this now in a place that is not my own. And yet, as Greg Saris, tribal chairperson of the Federated Indians of Graton Rancheria, the original peoples of this area say settlers like me are also now part of a moving history that I can participate in. He says that it's okay for people like me to claim this place as my own now, as long as I learn how to dwell. These are the words of Dr. Lenny Strobel, and we will be right back after these messages. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Do you know that you were born to experience revolutionary wellness? Have you wondered why extraordinary physical, mental, and emotional health has eluded you? Do you know that your infinite personal power resides right here in the present moment? People all over the world are awakening to their birthright. Revolutionary Wellness. Subscribe today at RevolutionaryWellnessMagazine.com and begin your journey into the mystery. Engage with experts in topics of nourishment, wisdom, and empowerment. Develop mental clarity. 
Live wholeheartedly and be empowered to live an authentic life of passion and purpose. The world, now more than ever, needs you to feel revolutionarily well. Explore and integrate new ways of being. Learn to access your own unique treasure, the wisdom that is right there inside you, waiting to be revealed. Experience a renewed, vivid, and nourishing relationship with yourself and the world around you. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today and experience the publication devoted to your journey toward extraordinary health and well-being. RevolutionaryWellnessMagazine.com In these times of converging crisis, the world needs us now more than ever before. Revolutionary Wellness Magazine is devoted to amplifying inspiring voices, facing challenging realities head-on, opening up new places of power, and inviting curiosity about the paths we might take toward personal, communal, and global health. The magazine aspires to help us become the change we wish to see in the world, co-creating the more beautiful world we know to be possible. Join us on this journey. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Our hosts are clinicians of mind and body medicine and lifestyle change. They are writers, activists, educators, and change agents. You can reach the show and our hosts at experiencerevolutionarywellness.com. Now, back to our show. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest today is Dr. Lenny Strobel. She's the director and founder for the Center for Babelan Studies. It's a 501c3 organization focusing on Filipino indigenous knowledge systems and practices with specific focus on Babelan discourse and Filipino psychology. Excuse me. The mission is to connect with resources and to facilitate the relevance, cultivation, and promotion of Filipino indigenous wisdom in an age of globalization through exploring and developing deep interconnectivity, wholeness of being, and deep empathy. It organizes conferences, workshops, retreats, concerts, and events that bring about deep appreciation for Filipino indigenous spirituality, creating and maintaining an online archive of spiritual, social, cultural, historical, and other materials relevant to our vision, fostering learning groups and collaborating with other organizations who share the vision, and facilitating decolonization processes rooted in Filipino indigenous spirituality, wisdom, and beauty. And welcome back, Lenny. Thank you so much for being here with us. And I I wonder, actually, Lenny, in your experience, to what extent would you say learning how to dwell in a place is a physical, embodied, enacted, maybe even ritualized practice? And to what extent is it a shift in consciousness or in perception or even in relating to the place itself? Because I think we all know people who seem to be dwelling just fine in a place, but they may be you know, enveloped by the modern industrialized story of busyness and fear and separation. I'm curious about that. And then also just, you know, the learning how to dwell as a spiritual practice or a sacred act. I'm curious if you could speak to that. You know, many years ago, I read a book called Wisdom Sits in Places. And 
it was describing how Native Americans and I'm not I'm sorry I have forgotten the name of that particular tribe where uh, the author was describing how they had names for every thing in the community that would always remind them of what happened at that particular rock at that particular crossroad between you know the highway and the forest and what so they would have these stories about trees and about mountains about plants and about the wind and about the sun and its effect on that place and I was reading this book and I realized I said oh my gosh I have never learned how to dwell in a place we were never taught how to do that Uh, and when you're colonized you were not taught how to honor the land honor the earth honor the ancestors who were there before and so as I was thinking of of this First, as just a concept of dwelling and how it's different from just being in a place. The concept of dwelling is very deep. It means you get to know the river. It means you get to know the trees. It means you get to know the animals and the birds that come and live in that place. And I realized that I didn't know any of that. And so when I mentioned earlier that for the first time I saw and acknowledged the redwood tree behind my house, that that was the beginning of, of connecting with, with trees. And even though I live in a suburb where everything, of course, is, is not wild, you know, everything is domesticated, the trees. And, uh, but there is a creek, the Santa Rosa Creek, that runs along my house just not a block away. And I would just sit by the creek and listen. And when I was reading this book on Wisdom Sits in Places, said, when you approach a place and you are new to that place, be quiet because the river doesn't know you yet. So you have to introduce yourself and you have to make proper offerings and you have to. Uh, and so one time I was just walking and, and I said, I'm just going to walk and listen. I'm not going to put headphones in music and I'm just, I'm just going to walk and listen and open my eyes. And I sat by the creek and, and the water was just a trickle because the, we haven't had any rains. And I, w- I just sat there. And I don't know what came over me, but I just started crying because I realized that I didn't know the creek. You know, and I didn't know the names of the hills around me. Um, so even now I feel like crying because I feel so bad. Um, so for me to begin to know the stories that the indigenous peoples in this place talked, uh, um, told among themselves. That's why I love, I'm reading these stories by Greg Series because he's sort of rewritten these original stories and, and, and now we, we have access to them too, you know. Uh, the, 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 the village that lived and all the people were up in Copeland Creek. And then I said, where's Copeland Creek? I didn't, or where's Gravity Hill? Where's, uh, so he's talking about all these places where coyote and, and the squirrel and the fog and the, and the rock, you know, they were all speaking and, and relating with, uh, with, with the Pomo people. So um, learning how to dwell is, is sort of means slowing down. It means I need to slow down. If if I I cannot 
keep thinking about, oh, I need to create another symposium. I need to write another book. I need to, you know, work with this project and this, that project. Um, I'm, I, I am compelled to just say no to some of those things that, you know, um, so when people are asking me and said, well, when is your next conference, Lenny? When is the next book? When is the, and I just say, I'm not doing any of that stuff. I'm just dwelling. <laughs> There's so much to learn. And I will never, never learn everything. You know, I, and, and there is um, Professor Ben Benson, who is um, on the board of Pepperwood Preserve and has worked with indigenous peoples in this community for maybe 40 years. And he knows so much more and he knows the community very well. You know, and... Um, and I can see where it takes it takes a lifetime to do this work, and I and I'm just starting, and I'm already old, and I want time, but I want to do what I can. Um, but the other thing that inspired me is I don't know if you've heard of Martin Pratel and this this other shaman uh, who lives in New Mexico, and he writes about. You know, how do you create a home where everything in your home has tells a story so that when your descendants, um, when you leave your home to your descendants, they will have all of the original instructions in those stories that, that you, in all, whatever it is that you have brought into your home. So um, I think about that a lot and I, I only have one grandson and I think of everything I do as something to leave behind for him so that he may know who he is. You know, so when my grandson was born 12 years ago, we planted his placenta in a lemon, um, in a barrel, and then put a lemon tree uh, on top of it. And that lemon tree is now 12 years old and, and it has good fruits. But when we buried his placenta, we, covered, we, we included prayers and we included stories about who he is and, and, and just ritualized that and, and let him know that, that this, is, this is who he is. He's part Filipino and he's also Irish and he's also Scottish and all of this mixed heritages that he carries with him. You know? um, and then I take him with me whenever I have the opportunity to uh, have a cultural event so he could see grandma dancing, he, chanting, drumming, whatever. <laughs> and I say, I want to give you the experience so that you know who you are. Um, so this, this building a house of origins, the way that Martin Pratel would say, is that make sure that everything in your house has a story. What is the story behind that picture of your of your mom and dad? What is the story behind that picture of the woman on the wall? You know, and 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 so everything then is connected to place. You know, and and here I am. I live in a suburban tract home, and I've lived here only for half my life, thirty years, and 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 my husband is from Montana, so. He has memories of what Montana is, but, you know, it's, it's just memory. But here, right here in this place, in this tract home, as we cultivate a garden, as we cult 
plant vegetables as we raise chickens. We 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 sort of it's I it's not maybe may not be ideal, but it's the closest that we can get to in terms of learning how to be how to dwell in this space, in this place. You know, and, and hopefully that we are part of a larger movement of people that are wanting to do that. And I think Sonoma County is is perhaps more progressive than other parts, if I may say that. Because I'm seeing a lot of young people going back to the land, farming, you know, going back to the land and thinking about food systems and food waste and thinking about sustainability and all of this good stuff. Um, and, and so I, I feel like I'm fortunate to to have a culture, a local culture that supports that. <clears throat> Just this weekend, I was with a small group of folks who, and we spent the weekend, um, we called it the Taste of Quiet, at Westminster Woods, which is on Bohemian Highway in Occidental. And, and just to be with the Redwoods and to be with the creek and allow and immerse yourself in a sound bath as you listen to the creek, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we, we just spent the weekend there, even though we knew there was the climate march going on. But we spent the weekend just reconnecting with with each other, creating community and 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 paying attention to the redwoods and and being with the redwoods and being walking the land and listening to the creek. Um, sometimes it gets to the point where I don't even know how to describe that anymore. <laughs> it's, <laughs> some of these experiences are you you need a poetic tongue to be say what those experiences feel like. Uh-huh. I'm still, you know, waking up this morning, being back here. And as I'm talking to you, I'm looking at the pepper, pepper tree in the backyard and realizing how grateful I am to have the opportunity to, to dwell, to learn how to dwell. And I don't know why I'm called to to dwell, but I feel like this is what my body, this is what the wisdom of my body has called me to, you know, and, and it's so different from the mind, the work of the mind, you know, mm-hmm. and I was so happy when I met Bio, you know, and, and, and he connected me with other folks that have walked out of academic, the academic <laughs> emphasis on the life of the mind. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, I'm just at that age where, and I've reached full professorship and I can retire now. You know, but I, you know, I don't know what it would be like to, and I know some folks who have just, you know, received a PhD and then all of a sudden they, they are having qualms or doubts about immersing themselves in full-time academic work because this is what it does, you know, to, to, to the body and the mind and spirit. And yeah. When I started doing this work, I I was always aware that I wanted to bring my whole self into the classroom. That if I cannot be myself as a Filipina, as a settler, as a woman of color, then my teaching is not fully embodied. And I think that's what I've tried to do in, in this work. And I've just been um, 
but the way I did it, Rochelle, is I felt like I've always had to operate just under the surveillance of the imperial gaze. Mm-hmm. I, I work uh, <laughs> <laughs> under the level so that you don't so that you don't get subjected to criticism or so that you don't get um, to be the lightning rod for racial issues, you know, or, mm-hmm. or um, I wanted to do the work that I wanted to do, but it was quiet, it was invisible. Um, on campus, on, in the academic world, it was sort of invisible and sort of marginal, marginal mm-hmm. but I did it, I did what I had to do. Um, and, and by the time, well, I'm almost retired. I have one more year of teaching part-time. But I, I did a lot of publishing and writing and, and doing all the, what can be called the academic requirements for tenure and promotion. Um, and fortunately, I, I was able to do both. Um, but I don't know what my advice would be for other academics now who are um, having to make a choice, you know, they're, they're having to make a choice of either publish and perish or, or, or to pay attention to their bodies and what the spirit is telling them and so on. But, um, but I'm also seeing that there are people that are thinking of alternatives, you know, what are, like as Bayo would ask, you know, what are the other powers that we are not tapping into? What are the other stories that we are not telling? What are the other paradigms that we are not investigating? So um, I think bringing out those questions is important and, um, and timely. And I think there is a culture now, don't you think, that is emerging, that is supportive of alternative institutions? Um, yes. Yeah, and, and even people talking about de-schooling their children or not sending their children to school because they don't want them to be uh, schooled in this way, you know. Um, I think I'll stop there for now and let you tell a story yourself. Or something. <laughs> I do. I do have a story. <clears throat> we uh, So my older daughter is 11 now, and we had a wonderful opportunity to visit Yellowstone when she was five. And there are these, um, you know, the the rangers put on together these little sort of packages of um, like, you know, scavenger hunts and little learning journeys that you can take your child on. And we were, we happened to be where the, uh, you know, there's just this beautiful area where there's all these different water, you know, incredible, you know, natural um, water features and things like that. And so we did this little this little tour and answered these questions together. I mean, I was more for me probably because she was just five. But what the questioning was getting at was, and there was this ultimate question really at the end of this, um, you know, the scavenger hunt, which was to ask, you know, is the water alive? And mm-hmm. Sophia you know, all the way through was like, of course it's alive. Of course it's alive, you know? And so, and, you know, I, I feel the same way too. It's, of course it's alive, you know? (laughs) But the, the amazing thing is, is that the answer, the right answer supposedly was that no water is not alive. And I just, I honestly, I walked off, walked off of that, out of that experience, just like, wow, this is what our children, they're, you know, we're going, taking our kids to Yellowstone to experience the life of this, 
you know, and sort of as a mirror of our own life, like we have that, this incredible um, life mirroring back to us and that um, just in this little experience, they were telling, they're teaching our children, no, it's not alive. It's like, okay, well, then what is it? It was really fascinating. I, um, but I too, you know, have, you know, incredible trees around me. And as I have worked with the practices of mindfulness and just re-embodying myself that, um, and connecting with nature on this whole new level, um, I will, I have, I still like, even as you're sharing your story, Lenny, about just being near the Creek and listening to the water and recognizing, you know, the, maybe the years that you didn't notice those things. I have the similar feeling and it definitely, um, you know, brings tears to just as you were telling your story, I'm tearing up thinking about that myself and that experience of all the years I've just allowed it to go by and not notice and be Mm. present for that. And so, um, and I do experience this as a, it's a sacred act. It's a, um, you know, it's a spiritual act of just showing up for what is here to um, to be experienced and to be noticed and to be witnessed, as Bio would say. Um, and um, yeah, it's it's the the amazing thing is that it is always right here in the moment for us to to show up for, and that's why I think this is such a profound you know, um, journey that we can really make these connections and it can be so profoundly healing. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you um, have experienced that or if you have that sense as well that this, I mean, you've devoted so much of your life and time to um, this wonderful organization that you have and I imagine you have that sense as well that this really is a, a healing practice that we can devote ourselves to. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I was just thinking of my grandson, and when I I took him to the coast, to the Sonoma coast one day, and of course they were rushing and were going to jump right into the water, and I said, hold on a second, before you get into the water, can you please ask permission from the ocean? And And I said, stop for a moment and just ask permission if you can play in the water. And so we did. And then we went to the Redwoods, the same thing. I said, what can you offer to the Redwood? And and I said, you know, you could pull a hair from your head because it's part of you and then offer it at the base of the tree. And, of course, they were laughing. You know, they were 10 years old and they 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 weren't thinking of these things. They just thought that grandma is weird. <laughs> so, But I, I, I tried to do these little things to... To make them think of of relating to the the ocean and the trees as living beings who, who want a relationship and who they should want to be in relationship with, you know. And in our organization, in our conferences, in, in every retreat or event that we try to do, uh, organize this is this is the end point. Of course, is healing, healing the disconnection, healing the separation from ourselves because mm-hmm. of the 
way we have been uh, torn away from our or from what our bodies um, intimately know, you know, and mm-hmm. yet the the life of the mind, the educational process, the cultural influences of of consumerism, individualism, and how that tears us away from what we already know in our bones and in our heart to be to be true, you know that. Uh, that we are whole and we are intact and we are indigenous still, you know, and and to begin to peel off those layers of how we have been colonized, how we have been conditioned to buy into this paradigm of consumerism and, and endless economic growth and buying big houses and showing off how wealthy we are and all that stuff. Um, I think when people begin to peel away those layers and, and just begin to see that we are already whole, we are already enough. And, and that's, for me, that's the message this weekend that I got from the retreat that I've just been to, is that the message is enough. You are enough, 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 enough. <laughs> and, 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 and so the healing comes from um, no longer wanting to be part of the rat race, of not wanting to be ambitious and successful in the way it has been defined for us by a, a consuming culture, a culture of, you know, consumption and competition and, and, and all that other stuff. Um, well, Lenny, that brings us to the end of this episode. And um, so our guest for this amazing series is Dr. Lenny Strobel. She is a professor, an eminent scholar, author, activist, and Babylon-inspired woman, and a lot more. But she also calls herself a settler and a colonized person. And she has embarked on a long and arduous journey to unlearn 500 years of colonial influence, which she says has shaped her consciousness and identity. And you can learn more at LennyStrobel.com. Thank you so much, dear Lenny, for being with us today on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio, for leading the way for us all to step onto our own long and arduous journeys toward our most intimately connected, authentic, inspired, whole, intact, and empowered selves. Thank you so much, Lenny, for being here with us today for this inspiring conversation. Thank you, Rochelle. Do I have one minute to talk about Bios' schedule? He will be at Sonoma State on May 9th and May 10th and 11th also. So if people want to get a hold of me, they can. I can give them the rest of the information. That's wonderful. And you can um, connect with Lenny at LennyStribble.com. Thank you so much. It is such a pleasure to be here with you all on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Until next time, may you be well and may we all be well. Thank you for opening your heart and mind to new ways of seeing, to greater degrees of compassion and to Pathways to Health for Our World with Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Join us next Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health on Voice America's Health and Wellness Channel.